Imagine, in the height of the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, waking up each day and looking around your community, seeing your neighbors unable to get easy access to food, including affordable fresh fruits and vegetables. That's where it came from. It just came from, you know, me wanting a program that regardless of me being black, regardless of me being from Inglewood, regardless of me not being in the sector before, regardless of people looking at me with a fitted hat and Jordan's on and debating whether or not I know about social entrepreneurship, we've been able to build a movement that really shows people what's really possible now. Join me today as I talk with Dion Dawson, son of the Inglewood community on Chicago's South Side, social entrepreneur and philanthropic disruptor. He's going to talk to us about his response to what he was seeing, what he's learning along the way, and what's possible for the sector as we rethink the hypothesis on addressing food insecurity. So I am thrilled to have Dion Dawson, dreamer and founder of Dion Chicago Dream here in our studio today. Welcome, Dion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I'd love for us to begin. If you could just tell us a little bit about who you are. I am uh, Dion Dawson, founder and executive director of Dion Chicago Dream, uh, Southside native, uh, born and raised in Inglewood, uh, Navy veteran, uh, father, husband, um, youngest of four boys, uh, love tacos, <laughs> crazy uh, uh, White Sox fan. And two years ago, I started a nonprofit that has taken just my life and kind of just mm. it's been a whirlwind. So it's been pretty cool. Yeah. So let's talk about that, right? So tell us a little bit about Dion's Dream Chica- Chicago Dream yep. and why did you start it? So Dion's Chicago Dream fights food insecurity, uh, but we do it in a different way. So we actually uh, don't take donated produce. Uh, uh, we actually buy everything uh, because what I've seen after, you know, kind of struggling growing up in Inglewood is the sector has been kind of stalling when it came to evolution. So we have a pantry model that was established in the 60s in Arizona. And from there, it's just been kind of the same way of attacking food uh, insecurity. And so I said, hey, if we're going to give people fresh options, let's make sure that we can anchor it in fresh. And we started with the community fridge. um, And within a few months of, you know, doing that. We still do it, stock it every single day on the south side of Chicago. Uh, we launched the Dream Deliveries. And Dream Deliveries is, you know, our way of really focusing on the end user experience when we talk about philanthropy um, instead of the donor experience. And so right now we're delivering over 11,000 pounds a month to more uh, more than 1,300 residents per week. Um and we're slated to hit about 40,000 pounds uh, per month next year. So, Dion, let's talk about the fridge. Yes. So I so the fridge is where it started. Yep, that's where it started. So, t- so like, I have this vision, right, yes. of a refrigerator. Yes. Right? I've seen pictures outside of a store. Yes. Right? So, like, you were sitting there at home, maybe talking with friends. What made you say, this, this, this is how we need to start, right? Right here in the community. With this fridge, I think that the the beautiful thing about 
not only our origin, but just even, you know, me to this day is that I really believe that anything is possible. And so, you know, when we're talking about the origins, it was a response from somebody, you know, one of my, you know, younger brothers, uh, so to speak. Uh, we, we grew up together and he just said, hey, after the murder of George Floyd, um, all of this unrest, there was a renewed importance when it came to Juneteenth that year, 2020. And he said, what are you going to do? And initially I was like, you know, hey, I try to help out when I can and do it. But after, you know, getting out of my own way, I said, we're going to feed 100 people. And so uh, started to go fund me, raised twenty five hundred dollars in twenty five hours, and on July third, we actually fed ninety six families. Happiest day of my life. Uh, tiring. I'd never done food <laughs> operations, so getting eight hundred pounds of food to a place with no truck and you know no logistics, I learned the hard way. The first time. Oh yeah. Yes. Uh, that day, I was approached with the chance for thirty thousand dollars in funding, and I couldn't take it because I wasn't a nonprofit. I didn't have a fiscal sponsor and it just absolutely gutted me. Um, I told myself that I would never, ever feel like that again. And so after a couple of days, um, I talked to my wife and I said, Hey, I'm, I'm going for it. She said, what's it? I said, I have no idea, but I'm just going to chase this feeling. And so one day in August of 2020, after incorporating and starting the nonprofit, I, right before bed, I said, Hey, I'm going to hop on Instagram real quick. And within two minutes, I saw a community fridge and I saw that uh, they were popular in the UK and they grew uh, in popularity here because of the pandemic. And I said, I have to do this. Mm -hmm. And so starting out, uh, I got got a fridge, talked to Love for Chicago about their sheds and how they covered it. Um, talked to the liquor store in Inglewood on 57th and Racine because, you know, I don't like or dislike liquor stores. You know what I mean? I think that when it when it came to the civil unrest, I picked that location because out of all of the things that were destroyed, that liquor store wasn't. It remained standing. Exactly. Yeah. Because they've been more to the community than just, hey, get liquor here. Mm. Not bad or good, just, you know, there. And so talk to them. They supported it. Never charged me for electricity. And on September 11th, um, I dropped the fridge in the hood. And, um, you know, it was, I, I still remember that day. It was hectic getting the shed there in the fridge and, uh, local artist Pugs Adams. He, uh, he's an artist. He painted the fridge because we wanted a, um, a local and neighborhood tie to it. And every weekday since then, no matter the weather or holiday, we've stocked that fridge. Wow. How many people do you have coming to the fridge on average? I mean, I would say, you know, because the fridge is, is empty within, you know, the artwork. Mm. You know what I mean? People know that, you know, I'm coming. And I think that's the beautiful thing is they've accepted that if I'm alive, I'm there. Yeah. You know what I mean? My team is there. Like, we're not playing. And you they know what count I mean? on it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. You know? And so, you know, some days I could pull up and there's 15 people waiting. Mm -hmm. Some days, no, no people. But. Within a, a couple you know minutes, they'll either hear my music playing while I'm stocking the fridge or they'll look down the street and see you know our, our van with the rainbow on the side of it. And they'll come around and they'll talk to me while I'm stocking it. But, you know, that's the thing. Um, I pride myself on really being a daily practitioner in this work because I think a lot of people in the sector are so far removed either from need or operations that 
it's it's a slower pace when it comes to change when it doesn't have to be like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we started we started it, and that has become you know the qualitative piece of of our organization that allows us to to stay present and be around more people that we're helping than other people who are in the work. Yeah. So, uh, what what prompted the move from fridge to dream deliveries? So. Uh, I would say uh, heartbreak. <laughs> um, I intriguing. yeah yeah I start uh, after a few months. Uh, we had enough money to apply for a brick and mortar location, mm-hmm. and that was for sale, and we didn't get it. Mm-hmm. Now, thank God we didn't get it because there wasn't enough uh, programming and and really focus in place to really uh, justify having that location, but we didn't get it. And I'll never forget talking to one of my good friends uh, that next morning. And she said, I was sad. You know what I mean? And she said, regardless of if you got the location or or not, you would still be leading your organization. And that's when everything changed. That's when I went from surviving to understand I'm actually running a business. Mm. And from there, I was like, okay, if we can't have a brick and mortar location, we need evergreen programming. We need programming that no matter what, no matter what day of the week, no matter what month, no matter what season, we always provided value. We always fed somebody. We always provided produce. And from there, I said, okay, because a lot of people think, you know, when it comes to breakthroughs in an, in an industry, you need to recreate the wheel. But I said, okay, we have all of these technological advances outside of the sector. You know, what's working outside of philanthropy? And so I took the approach of HelloFresh and I took the logistics approach from Amazon. And I said, you know, regardless of somebody believing in Amazon or not, you see proof of delivery. Mm-hmm. You see SMS or email notifications. You know, you see consistency with HelloFresh. And so I said, we're going to change it so that this delivery program is not a I hope it comes. It's a we're going to come every week. We're going to provide them with four or five days worth of brand new fresh produce. And they're going to know when the delivery is out. They're going to know when the route has been dispatched then we're going to have proof of delivery to make sure that we're holding ourselves accountable. Right. And in between that, the two major things was solidifying a wholesale grocer uh, that can meet our demand uh, and believe in our vision because this was before we really had any funding and making sure that we drew a hard line with volunteerism. Mm-hmm. And so for us, what does that mean? So I, I don't, wholeheartedly believe in volunteers and because when you look at the society we're living in and with capitalism there's a lot of toxic things ingrained in philanthropy so for example if you ask an organization about their demographical data of their volunteers that's kind of a form of systemic racism because Mm -hmm. if we're operating out of Inglewood none of our residents can afford to volunteer So we're pretty much going to take whatever volunteers we can get, but they won't look like our residents. Does that mean that our programming is not resonating in our community? No, it's just that our residents can't afford to work for free. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I just realized that, no, we're going to pay people for their time because who am I 
to be a good story and build a multi-million dollar organization off the backs of free labor. And then I'm just perpetuating the same thing that got us in this mess, which is, you know, in spite of being um, homeless and food secure and hungry throughout my childhood, my mom volunteered at churches and food Mm -hmm. pantries uh, and had nothing to show for it. And now here she is, 65, uh, 65 year old cancer survivor and can't qualify for retirement. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's just understanding that we can't get around paying people. Mm-hmm. And also when it comes to to food insecurity, we can't get around buying food. You know, that is the one thing that is just really avoided when it comes to this sector. It's like, no, like, no we have to buy. We have to set a hard line on quality so that a banana that's old in Streeterville isn't taken to Inglewood and treated like it's new. It's still old. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so with Dream Deliveries, uh, that's that's where it came from. It just came from, you know, me wanting a program that regardless of me being black, regardless of me being from Inglewood, regardless of me not being in the sector before, regardless of people looking at me with a fitted hat and Jordan's on and debating whether or not I know about social entrepreneurship, we can lead with programming. And with Dream Deliveries is one of not only the most impactful uh, programs in the country, uh, but also, you know, we've been able to build a movement that really shows people what's really possible now. So, Deanne, let's dig into this a little bit, because you and I have talked about this. Of course. Before, right. This of idea course. of being a black man. Yes. In philanthropy. Yes. And this sense of not belonging. Yes. And feeling. Yes. Like you don't belong. So. Talk to me a little bit about um, how that has been challenging, and it is, and it is also your superpower. Of course, uh, challenging. It is. It is a daily fight. Mm-hmm. Um, it is actually the one of the only things that give me emotional discomfort on a day to day basis. Mm-hmm. One of the only things in my life, you know what I mean. Other than that, I am. Good. But when it comes to being black in this sector, there's a lot of white voices talking about black and brown experiences. Mm. And when the conversation is had, it shifts to a tone of pity. And for me, it's one thing to say, you know, I as a white, you know, person couldn't possibly relate to you know, this black kids experience in Inglewood, but it's another to empower an organization or leader that's doing the work. Mm-hmm. And so here we have, you know, in the sector, organizations who are sitting at 15 million annually and have the ability to highlight the work and bring up partners, and they don't. They just take where they are and do the same old thing because it's, it got them, got them to where they are. So for me, you know, I know that I am not the only, you know, black voice that that needs to be heard in food. I am just supremely pissed off. Mm. And because of that, I am not going to hope and pray that I'm in rooms with other people that don't have the same line to like dedication to integrity as me. And so in doing that, it became my superpower, which is why as an org, we communicate our own story mm-hmm. because it is a fine line um, between 
stockpiling and gatekeeping. And we just, you know, I I just decided that we're going to tell our own story and we're going to show people that not only is anything possible, but you can start an organization with nothing and be on track to be a million dollar org in two years as a black man that has never been in the sector and show people that you can build an org off buying food instead of just hoping that somebody is generous enough to give you something. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when it comes to our our wholesale grocery jab produce, we're a customer. You know what I mean? We're a partner in the work. When it comes to uh, my delivery crew, you know, they're they're paid, they're compensated, they're respected. Um, and so for me, being in the sector, it is angering, but because I'm anchored in not believing that I'm any better than anybody else, I can reconcile my heart every night and wake up renewed and wanting to fight again. And I think that's the difference between, you know, allowing your heart to be hardened out on this road is that, you know, I don't have the cold switch. I can be me. You know what I mean? I can be me, say how I feel, but it's also anchored in fact, because, you know, a lot of times as a black man, especially in this sector, a black leader, you're discredited because you didn't do it yet, but you never got a fair shot to do it. So now the powers that be feel like they don't have to listen to you because they don't know if you're, you have proof of concept. And so I, I'm just lucky enough that, you know, this movement grew to the point where we could get proof of concept independent of anybody being our kingmaker. Right. Anybody uh, uh, creating barriers to you being able to. Do exactly. That. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So um, one of the things I know about you, you are um, locally known. Yes. You are nationally known. <laughs> you are internationally known. <laughs> so tell me. You know, what are the leadership lessons that you have learned in this journey over the past couple of years in being a social entrepreneur, in being a black man in philanthropy? Tell me a little bit about what you've learned. I think the first thing is that you always are learning. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that I have a very balanced and nuanced approach when it comes to, you know, it's one thing to say I don't know. But after I learn about it, Mm. you know, making sure I build up that part of the process. For example, I was talking, you know, months ago with uh, Kimberly Rudd at Rudd Resources, a black led uh, public, black founded and led uh, public relations firm here in Chicago doing amazing work. And she inquired about if we were GATA certified. And I did not know what that was. I don't know what that is. So, I our listeners may not. So uh, GATA certified is basically the certification you would need uh, for county grants, mm-hmm. uh, city grants, federal grants. And so, you know, it's one of the prereqs for the ARPA funding that was just released. And when she asked me, I did not like not knowing. Mm. And so, you know, she said, just to let you know, you know, this funding will be coming down in the in the coming months. And for me, I think that, you know, there was because you have to earn respect, you know what I mean? And I take uh, being a professional and being a leader serious. And so for her, I think that respect came when I told her, you know, six days later, I was GATA pre-certified. I went and got it. 
You know what I mean? Which, you know, in turns allowed us to receive our first ARPA grant mm-hmm. of 60000 three uh, four days ago. And so, thank you. And so, you know, the first thing is always learning, you know, and, and not thinking that I've learned enough because that is something that I see with, you know, this, this, uh, this culture in Chicago is, okay, you've done it 30 years. That means that you deserve to lead or you deserve to be in this room. No. You know what I mean? Like, like 10,000 hours to being an expert can be done in, in three months or it could be done in 10 years. It's all on you. And so that's the first thing. The second thing is uh, keeping people first. Um, not only with my team, I started, uh, you know, kind of going at it Lone Ranger style. But, you know, building up my team, uh, my logistics supervisor, uh, building up my delivery crew and really empowering them and making sure that they know what we're doing while we're doing um, and and respecting and treating them like equals. You know what I mean? It's not just paying them, but really showing them like why they're paid and what we're doing and the impact that we have. Um, other than that, you know, it is it, it kind of comes with ebbs and flows mm-hmm. and not for me, because this is I'm this is what I was meant to do. You know what I mean? But, you know, with other leaders and also making sure uh, one of my mentors, Angelique Power, who's at uh, Skillman in Detroit now, she said something early on when she kind of became my my mentor. She said, make sure that you're giving yourself grace and space. Mm-hmm. And it blew my mind because it sounds so simple, but it's so hard. So difficult. And so how do you give yourself grace? Well, no, I'm just I'm just understanding of myself. Mm -hmm. And I know that I maxed out that day. I know that from 4 a.m. to whatever time I went to sleep, I put it all on the line Mm -hmm. and I don't wait. Um, And so, you know, in leadership, I'm also expressing that to other leaders. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like give yourself grace and space to not know or or you do know. But, you know, like we'll mess up. You know I mean, but, um, you know, just just that's something that I have to, you know, keep at the forefront of not only my approach, but just the overall message that I want to, you know, be attributed to, you know, my leadership and and this run that I'm kind of on. Because I think, you know, I think that as leaders, we really underestimate time and how it's grouped together. So I w- my my example would be. Um, the two Bulls championships, uh, championship runs. Okay. That's kind of like leadership. You know, you're going to have a moment where you just don't really know what's going on and you can't, you're not really tethered to the ground. But when you do, you kind of go on like a, a nice two year sprint where you're effective, you're impactful, you feel like you're doing what you want to do. And so I try to tell people like, just remember that, you know, time, impact, uh, Leading, following, all of it is subjective. And the more you learn, the more you you can look back and view something differently. So mm-hmm. there's just a few things that yeah. I've kind of, you know, learned. Along the way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I know that uh, this month you are going to be delivering a TED Talk. Yes. Uh, around this topic of rethinking the hypothesis. Yes. Right? Yes. So when I look at... And as you've shared with us how you're rethinking food insecurity here in the city of Chicago, what what are some of the things that come to mind for you as you rethink the hypothesis? Oh, it's easy. It's this this is easy, actually. The only hard part is memorizing it. Uh <laughs> the 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 talk is around making sure that there's dignity, respect uh inside of food distribution. Mm. And so 
You know, I I credit TEDx Wrigleyville because it allowed me to really tether my feelings to something tangible, which is just because an organization is not doing it exactly like me, how can they implement things to make it better for the end user? And the first thing, of course, is, you know, making sure that all of the technology and resources that we make available for donor relations, we do it for the recipient. You know what I mean? Like we have consistent touch points. We have uh, Salesforce uh, logistics We uh, and data. We have, you know, making sure we know where they work, what their favorite food is, how many kids they have, when they like to give during the year, how much they like to give. But then when you ask them about the recipient, there there's ambiguity. And then we wonder why there's hesitation when it comes to direct service orgs and actually receiving funding. Well, that's because we're looking at, you know, people from the outside looking in at all of the lack of technology that's being applied to the to the service. And so that is like, first and foremost, something that when we're talking about the hypothesis, we just have to get out of. Um, something else is meeting people where they are. Um, we're living in a time where we're the least reliant on brick and mortar locations. And of course, some of this can be attributed to the pandemic, but also, you know, the technology, uh, the techno technological advances that we're seeing. And so I don't like that helping a person has become reliant on them coming to us. Mm. That is not, you know, the only way to help people. Now, of course, it is important to have that physical presence, but that shouldn't be the end all be all. You know what I mean? There's so many different barriers that can prevent somebody from coming to a location that is not their fault. You know, we should be built and nimble enough to have different ways of meeting that need. And that's what Dream Deliveries was built on. And so, you know, also meeting people, um, where they are. And then um, I would also say, for example, you know, which it, which is, you know, why I text you is even with Feeding America, you know, what, why is the membership only food banks? Mm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. When we've seen that there are different types of food orgs that could benefit from having that support, having that community, having that, you know, that back end approach. And so, you know, just really challenging, like, why is this a thing? You know what I mean? And for the most part, my entire life, I have been told why something is impossible Mm. and I'm just not doing it anymore. You know what I mean? I don't care how big an organization is. You know, we have systems in place where we should be assessing impact. We should be assessing, you know, strategy and approach on a year to year or quarter to quarter uh, or decade by decade basis. And I'm burning all the boats. Mm. I have nothing to lose. And, you know, the one thing about social entrepreneurship that is like entrepreneurship is that if anybody took this from me, I'll just do it again. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, I want my org and other orgs to be nimble enough to meet however unique the need is at that time. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, is we got so anchored in thinking we we knew what the need would look like that when the need evolved, nobody was there to meet it. Yeah, Yeah. you 
you said earlier, right? Grace and space to not know. Yes. Right. Yes. And live and live in it. But yes. and it's so and, and I get that it's hard as an org to live in the unknown. But when you're in direct services, you know what I mean? And when you're you're in feeding people. You gotta have a, a a portion of that that is unknown because we just don't know. Right. You know what I mean? And I think that's the beautiful part is if you woke up every day just knowing that there's no fun. <laughs> you know, I love waking up and that's driving. Yeah, you wake yeah. up and I don't know what today's social media video is gonna be. You know what I mean? And I look up an hour later and I post it's me dancing or something. Like, you know, like that, like it, it shouldn't be surprising like 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 this is we have to get back to to championing the people who love it mm. not just are good at it because good is subjective you could be great at a job and then if the market changes you are now at the bottom but if you love it you'll love it enough to keep learning and keep applying and keep shifting with it yeah this is a new direction of leadership yeah. right you can't Look back at your history for answers. Yes. We have to develop answers as we move forward. Exactly. So thinking about moving forward. Yes. Um, I think I've asked you this question once before about yes. Dion's Chicago dream. Yes. But I'm going to ask it a little bit differently. Okay. So 10 years from now. Yes. What would you like to see happening differently in the sector such that it is impactful meaningful, connected, and showing uh, dignity and respect to residents and individuals who, who need support with food? I think the first thing is that I would want leadership to be diverse mm -hmm. and reflect where society is, um, even in age. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, I look at a lot of spaces and no matter the sector, no matter uh, the problem, it's the same people in the same rooms receiving the mm -hmm. same awards, giving the same speeches. And it's just like, nah, you know, so I would want, you know, diversity, not only in leadership, but, you know, a more inclusive uh, society and, 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 and sector that reflects the people that they say they're helping. Uh, Dream Deliveries is but a vessel and a way to challenge the status quo at delivering services. So I would want, you know, the sector and organizations to know more about who they're helping, respect them and and talk to them. Um, and I want them to know why they're doing something and why they're not. I think that's very important. Mm -hmm. Because when you have that, in, um, you're that intentional, you don't have to waste time trying to prove you know what you're doing. You know what I mean? And I think that was something that when people talk to me, if they don't know me, they, they would think that I'm, you know, a fly-by-wire guy. I'm extremely intentional about what I communicate, who I talk to, who I spend my time around, and what I, and what I release out into the world. But there's not that same uh, intentionality behind everybody else's movements, mm. because once you're going at a certain pace and you you you're operating at a, a different frequency, you start to see it, and it's unfortunate. But it's also like again, grace and space, and understanding that okay, this is today. How do we make sure that it's better tomorrow? Yeah, I'm also thinking about right over the past couple of years. There's been this sense of 
how do we disrupt yes. sort of like this uh, rote approach, yes. right? This sort of way that we do things. How do we disrupt? Yes. And uh, folks like you, Dion, help us disrupt, right? Of course. Uh, uh, organizations like Dion Chicago Dream help us disrupt. So thank you for your leadership. I appreciate it. And your disruption. And thanks for joining me of today. Of course. Of course. I, I appreciate it. Thank you for uh, having me. And um, we have a lot more disruption in us. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and I would challenge just anybody that's listening to, you know, disrupting doesn't have to be a negative thing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, I think that a, a lot of times, especially prior to this generation or this moment in time, a lot of people went against their gut. Mm. You know what I mean? And I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but it's just fact. And now we have people, you know, who are a bit more impulsive. Um, But I think that, you know, that's how you kind of find out who you are is, okay, you might have went against your gut this time, but having the freedom to kind of go with your gut this time. And, and, you know, that's what, you know, is kind of prompting, um, this new realm of leaders, you know what I mean? Who's, you know, fed up with being told, you know, what they can do when, you know, we, regardless of age, they're on the ground, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And me knowing that one person couldn't possibly, you know, run everything, you know what I mean? And, And I think that, you know, with philanthropy, we have to get back to not only loving and enjoying, because I think there's so many leaders I talk to that just, go through the motions, you know, but like I, here I come walking in and I'm excited and they're like, you know, Hey, I just got off eight zoom calls. I'm like, <laughs> and, and, and it's funny, but also I don't feel bad because they purposely did it. Hmm. If you don't want eight zoom calls, go against it. Nobody is telling you, you have to do that. You know what I mean? Like I like there has to be more people, you know, standing on their power saying, okay, cool. If you don't want to do it, how are you going to be different? Yeah. Because right now I just see a lot of people doing what everybody else is doing. Yeah. And at first it's, it's fun for me, but now it's like, okay, let's figure out how we get more people to believe in themselves. So yeah, but I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Elevating Voices, Ending Hunger. To learn more about Dion and his work in communities, visit DionChicagoDream.com. And to learn about the work Feeding America is doing to address equity and food insecurity, visit feedingamerica.org backslash act. Thank you to our podcast producer, Rivet360. And don't forget to share this show with others. Be sure to subscribe so that you can get new episodes as soon as they are available. I'm your host, Amy McReynolds, and I look forward to continuing our equity journey together in the next episode.